A couple of years ago, Time Magazine identified its top 10 ideas that shape the world. Number four on the list was something called ah mortality, mortality with the prefix A. The term was coined by the author of the article, but he has hit on something people are interested in. Amortality is not merely the popular effort to forestall aging through all kinds of pharmaceutical products, nips and tucks, but the effort to deny death itself. Here's what the article says. It says, ah, mortals don't just dread extinction, they deny it. Ray Kurzweil encourages them to do so. Fantastic Voyage, which the futurist and chronics enthusiast co-wrote with Terry Grossman, recommends a regimen to forestall aging so that adherents live long enough to take advantage of forthcoming radical life-extending and life-enhancing technologies. Cambridge University gerontologist Aubrey de Grey is toiling away at just such research in his laboratory. He writes, we are in serious striking distance of stopping aging. By the way, he's the chairman of the Methuselah Foundation. <laughs> Oldest, longest living man in the Bible, by the way. It gives an M prize to each successive research team that breaks the record for the lifespan of a mouse. Aren't you encouraged? <laughs> he says it's obvious that it's possible to extend the human life of span indefinitely. Most people take the view that aging is this natural thing that's going on independently of disease. Now, let's see if you can figure out this sentence. That's nonsense. Not that sentence, this sentence. The fact is that age-related diseases are age-related diseases because they're the later stages of aging. That sounds real scholarly, doesn't it? Well, the Time article concludes, for all the optimism about how science may prolong life, mice and humans keep turning up their toes. You know, despite the fuss, lifespans may have been extended to some modest end. But life still ends for all. This is the reason that we celebrate today. Jesus Christ has conquered sin, death, and the grave. Christianity rises or falls with the truth of the resurrection. And it's my joy to you to proclaim to you today the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 12 to 20, and in this section of Paul's great chapter, this is actually known in the Scriptures as the resurrection chapter, he makes this question clear. What difference does it make? So what? And he, he answers the question through six conditional statements, and let me pray, and then we'll read that text. Father, please help us to understand your word today. We pray that you would be in our midst and use your spirit to open our hearts that we might receive and believe, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so I'll read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 20. This is God's word. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, 
and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The word of the Lord. As we look at this chapter, we're looking at a, a congregation in the city of Corinth that was very troubled. They were troubled about many things, but many of them had a doubt about the resurrection, the doctrine of the resurrection altogether, of course, which led to the doubt about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Paul addresses this by looking at these six what difference does it make conditional statements. And so he begins, if the Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If there's no doctrine of the resurrection, then Christ is not raised. It cannot be possible. Now, many of the new believers in the early church were Jewish converts. And among Judaism, there were two major parties. There were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the Sadducees were the theological liberals of the day. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the afterlife. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, were believers in the resurrection, the idea of the resurrection, and also the afterlife. And Paul used this in a very interesting way when he was standing before the Sanhedrin um, in Acts chapter 23. He recognized that there were Sadducees and Pharisees in the council, and listen to what he did. He said, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It's with respect to the hope and the resurrection that I'm on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. You see what Paul's doing here? The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor rose, and some of the scribes and the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. And so it basically caused everything to, to fall apart. But before there can be resurrection, there has to be real death. And when you look at the gospel writers, it's very, very clear that the efforts of the Roman soldiers were effective in putting Christ to death. They were professional executioners. It was also true that they worked very hard to make sure that Jesus stayed dead because they ordered a Roman guard to be placed at the tomb, lest the disciples steal the body away, and as they said, lest the last disciple be worse than the first. The imperial seal was placed on the grave. If that seal was broken, the penalty is death. So no seal, though, or human authority could stop Christ's resurrection. No Roman guard could stop him from coming forth. And the huge stone was tossed away like a twig. Now, through the course of history, there have been those who've tried to disprove the resurrection but have been turned around. There's a man named Frank Morrison who determined that he was going to end Christianity once and all, once for all, because he knew that if he could kill the resurrection and make sure Jesus stayed dead, that Christianity would be finished. So he did his research, but his conclusion was completely the opposite of what he thought it would be. He wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone? And the first chapter is entitled The Book That Refused to Be Written. So he was going to write a book debunking the resurrection, but he wrote a book speaking of the resurrection because Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. 
You notice Paul begins uh, early in this chapter, uh, let's say verses 3 and following, he talks about uh, the third day, he was raised the third day, and he appeared, excuse me, verse 5, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. There are plenty of eyewitnesses of the, of the resurrection. And uh, listen to these words. I accept the resurrection of Easter Sunday not as an invention of the community of disciples, but as a historical event. Words of a good Christian theologian, right? No. They come from Pincus Lapid, who is a Jewish New Testament scholar. And in his book, The Resurrection of Jesus, he says that we have to explain the fact that the hillbillies of Galilee, who for the very real reason of the crucifixion of their master, were saddened to death, were changed within a short period of time into a jubilant community of believers. Hard to explain, except for the resurrection. And someone once said that Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb because he wouldn't need it very long. So no, the resurrection, Christ is raised from the dead. But second, Paul goes on to say, he says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain. The resurrection of Jesus is the heart of the message of the Christian preacher. The word vain literally means empty. If you take the resurrection out of our preaching, then there is nothing to say. There are a couple of preacher's kids who are arguing about their father's expertise one day. And one little boy said, my dad can preach for an hour on any subject. His friend said, that's nothing, my dad can preach for an hour without a subject. (laughs) But my friends, because Christ is raised, I've always got something to say. I've always got something to say. And it's not just New Testament texts. I wish I had time to do a a survey of Old Testament texts that point forward to and speak of the resurrection, but here's just a couple. Remember the book of Job, Job asked the question, if a man dies, shall he live again? And later... He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end He will stand on the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Then in Psalm 16, David prophetically speaks about the resurrection of the Messiah. He says, I have set the Lord always before me, because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And the apostle said, yes, this is about the Messiah because David died. And needless to say, every page, almost every page in the New Testament points us to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that's a good message for a preacher to preach. And we don't want to be misrepresenting God. Do you see that? If we're preaching about the resurrection of Christ, he's not been raised, verse 15, we are found to be misrepresenting God. It's not a good thing to misrepresent God. To misrepresent the truth is a serious matter. Lots of folks misrepresent the truth on their resumes That's not a good idea. There are lots of people, especially this time of year, who are misrepresenting the truth on their tax returns. That's not a good idea either. 
I surely don't want to misrepresent the truth, but I'm not because Christ is raised from the dead. Look at the heart of Paul's message in verses 3 and 4. I delivered of to, you, to you as a first appointance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the gospel message. He lived, He died, He was buried, and He was raised on the third day. This is my eighth Easter here at St. Stephen. It's hard to believe. It's also my 42nd Easter as a minister of the gospel, and I sure am happy that every one of those Easter's had the opportunity to rejoice and praise the Lord for this great victory. And the sad thing is, I don't know if you saw the recent Gallup poll that the number of church members has declined dramatically over the last 20 years. It's very, very sad. And uh, not only that, with the impact of the pandemic, the Barna Group says that perhaps one out of every five churches will not reopen. But I believe that the disinterest in church membership may well be related to the fact that when people go to church, they're hearing about everything but about the gospel. Now, people don't go to church to hear the pastor's opinion on political things or on the weather or whatever it might be. They come to hear the Word of God, and that's why those churches that are proclaiming the Word of God are those that are going to survive and thrive. So no, 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 my friends, my preaching is not in vain. Then he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, in verse 17. The word translated futile is a different word than the one used for vain earlier in verse 14. That word meant empty. This word means aimlessness. Imagine having a faith that is aimless. So, if you believe in Jesus Christ and Christ isn't raised, then your faith is dead end. Everybody knows how frustrating it is to take a turn and find out it's a dead end. But think how frustrating it would be to come to the end of your life and realize that your faith in one who had been raised from the dead wasn't accurate. But Christ has been raised from the dead. His promises are true, and therefore He's a worthy object of our faith. Now I know we mentioned last Sunday that hope springs eternal, and yes, the Phillies are 2-0. They're undefeated. They're in first place. But I doubt if there's anyone in this room who believes they're going to go 162-0. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. In fact, the, the best experts suggest that the best they're going to do is to win 82 games. You know what that means? they'll lose 80 games. Anyway, if you have faith in the Phillies to go 162-0, your faith is foolish. But your faith in Christ is absolutely worthy. He is worthy. He's a worthy object of your faith. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Paul wrote, He was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. And so it's by faith that you receive all the benefits of His resurrection. For God so loved the world, we know, it says, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So have you believed in Him? Some have taken the word faith and made an acrostic out of it, F-A-I-T-H, forsaking all I 
take him. So no, your faith is not futile, not aimless. Fourth, if Christ has not been raised, you're still in your sins, says in verse 17. A sin is something that people don't like to hear about or think about. One of the words translated sin in the Bible, specifically in the New Testament, is a Greek archery, archery term meaning miss the mark. And I didn't know until this week that that Greek word has been uh, anglicized and put in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. The word is a very descriptive word. The word is hamartia, and it means to miss the mark. But in the English dictionary, the definition is a tragic flaw. And it's used to describe the tragic flaws found in characters of Greek drama. But in the New Testament, it just means to miss the mark. It means to miss the mark. Now, what is the mark? Well, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount what the mark is. So if you're thinking today that you're going to get to heaven on the basis of your good works, here's how good you have to be. Matthew 5, 48, you are therefore to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Anybody in here perfect, you're excused. And if anybody gets up, I'm sure your spouse will not follow. Now, with sinfulness, the wages of sin is death. That's why death exists. And this is the eternal flaw of humanity. And so I'm very reluctant to characterize whole groups of people with a single label, which is why, together with several other reasons, I do not describe the overarching problem as systemic racism, for example. However, I do believe in systemic sinfulness. I believe in that. So all having sinned and fall short of the glory of God, no one is exempt, and the symptoms of systemic sinfulness take on many forms. In some cases, it's racism. In some cases, it's lust. In others, it's greed. In others, it's plain old selfishness. In some, it's this thing one day and it's this thing the next day. That's why Jesus had to come to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, to pay the price for our sins, the only way that we could be free. That penalty had to be paid. That's why on the cross, one of the last things he said, it's translated, it is finished, but it's one Aramaic word. To telestai, it means paid in full. So right before he died, he said, to telestai, it is finished, paid in full. Are you confident that your sins have been paid for in full? Many years ago when we were selling our house in Upper Darby to move to Lancaster County, I received notice from the title company managing the settlement that my school taxes had not been paid, and there was a lien on the property. I thought, oh, no. But I distinctly remember paying the bill and getting a stamped receipt at the bank. And so I found the stamped receipt, and I took the stamped receipt into the bank, and I said, oh, dear, we made a mistake. Those things are put in a box and taken to the township. Somehow yours got lost. Some mine was paid, but it wasn't paid, but then it was paid. you got to know that it's paid in full. Are you sure that your sins are paid for in full? Jesus Christ's resurrection says that he paid the price, and if you believe in him, you will be forgiven. I just want to reiterate the point that we cannot 
get to heaven by our own righteousness. Former Mayor Michael Bloomberg went to his 50th class reunion some years ago. And I don't know about you, but when you go to class reunions getting to be our age, you look around and say, who are all these old people? <laughs> and they look in the mirror and say, well, he became very confident or very convicted about his mortality, and so he figured he'd better do something to get ready for the end of his life, so if, if there is a judgment day. And so he worked on gun safety, obesity, smoking cessation, and his comment as, as a result of that was this. He said, I'm telling you, if there is a God when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I am heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Well, the one part of his statement that's true is it's not even close. That's right. You know, there's a lot of things that money can buy, but there's a lot of things that money cannot buy. And you cannot purchase the righteousness that's necessary to gain access and entrance into heaven. You cannot purchase it by money. You cannot purchase it by good deeds. That righteousness is only available to you through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we know that he finished his work by the fact that he rose from the dead. So if Christ isn't raised from the dead, that's evidence that he didn't pay the price. If his sacrifice wasn't sufficient, then there's no expiation for our sin. If there's no expiation for our sin, there's no justification. If there's no justification, there's no forgiveness. If there's no forgiveness, there's no salvation. To summarize, no resurrection, no chance. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. Romans 4, verse 25, the debt is paid. He was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the exclamation point to His finished work. And if you've trusted in Him, if you've received Him by faith, then you can know, as Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. That's why the resurrection matters. Fifthly, if Christ has not been raised, Paul says, then even those who have fallen asleep have, in Christ have perished. So if Christ isn't risen, then anybody who believed in Him, they perished. What does the word perish mean? It doesn't mean to pass from existence. Uh, so annihilationism says that when you die, you're dead. No, no, the word, according to one commentator, denotes a state of perdition in which the soul remains under the wrath of divine condemnation. It's elsewhere described as destruction. At its root is the word from which Satan gets one of his names, Apollyon, or destroyer. This title is given to him in the book of Revelation as the king of the abyss of hell. And so, here's the point. Everybody is going to exist eternally. You have a soul. But the question is, will your existence be in the blessedness of glory that's purchased through Jesus Christ, or will you be in an existence of condemnation for your sin? That's the option. Those are the options available, only two options. So I urge you to make sure that you're trusting in Him so that you don't have to pay that penalty one day because Christ has been raised from the dead. In my ministry here at St. Stephen, I have presided over nearly 50 uh, home-going funeral services. And every single one of those services begins in the same way. 
I walk up to that podium and I say this. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And so that's the promise. That's the hope. That's the guarantee that the resurrection gives to us. So Christ has been raised from the dead. Those who've died before will see them one day. We'll see them. Again, not because of their goodness, but because of trust in Christ. And so we know that those who have gone on before, Paul says elsewhere, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's a guarantee that we have. Then sixth and finally, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, if in Christ, he says, we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I don't know about you. I don't want to be pitied. Pity is defined as sympathy and sorrow aroused by the misfortune or suffering of another person. And generally, we don't want to be characterized by the kinds of conditions that lead to being pitied. Some of you may remember this, but when I was a kid at the farm, you go to the farm show, and there was a man, a poor soul, who sat on a little wagon, wheeled himself around, he sold pencils. Do you remember that, Bob? He sold pencils. And my mother would always go up to him and always buy a pencil, and she'd say to me, she'd say, Timmy, that's what she called me. She'd say, don't stare. Don't stare. And the, the text says, doesn't say that we are among, among those to be pitied. We are to be most pitied if Christ isn't raised from the dead. The irony is that many people in this world pity Christians because of their faith in this supernatural event. But on that day, on that day, Christ reminds us that we will be joint heirs with God, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And right now we are His children we're children in the royal family. And Paul writes in Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered him up for me. He loves you. He loves you. All that because Christ has been raised from the dead. You know, some years ago, I participated in the memorial service for the wife of one of my best friends. She was a medical professional, and she got her diagnosis pretty early on. And when she would speak to her colleagues about her diagnosis, they would ask her, are you afraid to die? And she would say, no. Are you? Are you? You can be ready, my friend. You can be ready because Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead. He is not in the tomb. His body was never produced. His, my, resurrection, my preaching is not useless. Your faith is not futile. You are no longer in your sins. Those who have died in faith are not lost, and you are not to be pitied. C.S. Lewis wrote, something perfectly new in the history of the universe had happened. Christ had defeated death. 
The door which had always been locked had for the very first time been forced open. God had come down into the created universe, down to manhood, and come up again, pulling it up with him. That's what he did for you and for me. And you know, this morning, it's so interesting. I realized as I was doing my final preparation for this message, I realized that this is my 50th Easter as a believer in Jesus Christ. Wow, it makes me sound old. But you know what? He has never, those who believe in Him will never be disappointed. Why? Not just because He lived and He died, but because He rose again. And that resurrection carries power, not just for the afterlife, but now. He's sent His Spirit, and that's why this chapter ends with these words, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain. We are heralds. We are pictures of His resurrection life. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for this day, and thank You that the resurrection of Jesus is not a day that we celebrate merely today, but every single day. And Father, I ask today, if there's anyone here who is still depending on themselves to have a right standing with you one day, I pray that they would realize that is an impossible task, because no one can be justified by the works of the law. But I pray that they would place their trust in Jesus and know that assurance that only He can give of forgiveness and life abundant here and life eternal. And for each one of us, Father, who trusts in you, may we rejoice again, uh, not just today, but every day in the great victory you've given to us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.